So that whole environment is what I love the most about cooking. It's a, it's a bizarre addiction because you work like 60 hours a week and you're on your feet all day and your whole body hurts, but like there's nothing going to stop me from getting out of bed the next day and going back in there and doing it again. I get a huge kick out of teaching people things and watching them go from not even being close to being able to do it to absolutely nailing it. I love that. Dirty Linen's mission is to tell inside stories of the hospitality industry. And we're always asking ourselves where that might take us, how we might go about it. This week, we're taking a deep dive into Melbourne restaurant Carlton Wine Room, a much-loved wine-focused restaurant in a prominent corner building in the inner-city suburb of Carlton. We'll be hearing today from head chef Connor Pomroy, and during this mini-series, we'll also talk to co-owner Andrew Joy, just-qualified chef Bethan Williamson, junior sommelier Sayaka Bilsic, and chef de party Benod Gautam. We're looking to round out the story of this restaurant to go deep. And when you hear what kind of restaurant Carlton Wine Room is, and you get to know some of the people who work there, maybe you'll also find it inspiring, even change-making. As always, we'd love to know what you think of the show. If you enjoy it, leave us a five-star review on your fave podcast app. It means more people get to find out what we're doing over here on Dirty Linen and on the whole Deep in the Weeds network. So here we go. Welcome to Carlton Wine Room. Okay, uh, my name is Connor Pomroy. Um, I'm the head chef of the Carlton Wine Room, based in Carlton. Uh, the Carlton Wine Room is a large venue uh, based in the corner of Faraday Street and Drummond Street in Carlton. Uh, we trade seven days a week, uh, lunch and dinner five of those days, and Wednesday, Tuesday and Wednesday is dinner only. Uh, we have three function rooms as well, as long as a bar floor and a mezzanine landing, which is the restaurant, and an outside seating area. It's a beast. We can fit about 150 people in here at one time. I have been here for just over three years. Um, I started here as a chef to party, uh, and I became the sous chef in, I think, February the following year, and I became the head chef at Easter time this year. I think one of the most important things to know about the Carlton Wine Room is the experience as a whole. So from the moment you go to the door, nine times out of ten, you'll never have to open it for yourself. There'll always be someone there to greet you, and then they'll show you to your table, and that's where it starts. And it's very consistent, so each time you come, it was almost exactly the same as it was the last time. And like The package as a whole, the food and beverage, works in unison with itself. It's in the name. Carlton Wine Room is driven by the grape. But people definitely go for the food too. So what is the food direction? How does the team put the menus together? And which dishes are absolutely bolted on? Uh, the food style works inside a framework that we've all agreed on. So it starts mostly with a, that it needs to go with wine and the cellar list is quite extensive. So we try to deviate a little bit away from really spicy food because it can mess with a lot of the tannins in the wine. But every time I get asked to explain the food that we do here at the Carlton Winery, I'd I kind of struggle to answer it, but I'd say it's mostly European techniques and Mediterranean influence, but all of the food that we do here is mostly based on seasons and like any local produce that we can get at any time of the year that's really, really good. So we have two farm suppliers that supply us every Thursday and I'll get an email on Monday and they'll give me a list of everything that they have. There's like certain things that I'll order like on a weekly basis and then like the seasonal change and then something different will come up like broccoli leaf. And I'll be like, well, what can we do with that? So I'll order that and then 
another month or two will go by, then we'll get like horse rider sleep. I'm like, well, I've never seen or used that, so we'll try that out. But I guess the further we do here is just driven by the seasons, and it's mostly European, so Italian, French, all the techniques come from there. There are a few um, Kaltamine classics that, are, that don't come off for two reasons. They've been on long enough that they're called classics, and then for the second reason, we have so much, such a uh, loyal fan base from all of our regular diners that if we were to take it off, they'd get a little bit upset, and it's, it's happened before. So the anchovy toast with the ricotta and the pickled cucumber stays on, uh, the stracciatella with the pickled mushrooms and the potato focaccia bread, well, that can never come off. People get very upset about that. We have some customers that come and just order the bread. Um, and, of course, the rum barber as well. is like an iconic dessert made by JP. So it's like a soaked bread and rum syrup with um, pastry cream on top. It's delicious. If there's one dish that defines Carlton Wine Room, it's a stracciatella and pickled mushroom dish. Rich, fresh, textured and pretty all at the same time. So the stracciatella is, the stracciatella itself comes from Dadzamore, which is a very large scale production company based in Thomastown. Uh, they, I think they use 5 million litres of milk a year to produce the Italian goodies, which is absolutely insane. Uh, so the bowl starts with 80, 80 grams of the stracciatella cheese and then we pickle mushrooms in a concoction of soy sauce and red wine vinegar and sugar syrup and all of our mushrooms get cooked to remove some of the water content so they actually absorb the pickle. Otherwise, if you pickle mushrooms from raw, as they pickle, they'll release all their water into the pickle and whatever it'll just make it really insipid. It'll be like watery and really dull. So they go on top and then we give them like a really generous um, kind of like spray of the pickle so it carries through the cheese because the cheese is really fatty the pickle helps to cut through that then on top of that we'll give it some spring onion oil it's basically just spring onions that are blended with really hot oil and then strained it's like a really nice dark green colour and then on top of that we'll go fried rosemary and cracked pepper and then the bread that we serve on the side with that is basically a bread that's made with zero zero flour which is like a pasta flour and we cook potatoes in water until they're completely cooked through. Then we blend them to make like a potato water. And that's the wet mix for our bread. And then just yeast, sugar and salt. It's a really unique recipe and it's absolutely outstanding. The texture of the bread somewhere between fluffy and chewy. And it just gets a little bit of thyme and salt on top. It's a great dish. People just... You haven't really had anything like it until you come here and you're like, what is that? I can still remember the first time I had it, or it would have been over three years ago, and there was the one dish that stood out the most. And I was like, "What is that?" Like I couldn't, like I couldn't pick it to pieces in my head. I was like, "That's just ridiculous." The hospitality industry is often one of short stints, quick moves, and high staff turnover. But how do you build and retain a consistent team? And if money isn't the main driver, then what is? So I've been here for three years, and there is. Natalie, Sayaka, Houston, Andy Trout. There's probably six or seven staff members that have been here as long as me. And the restaurant had, had only reopened in February that year. So I think, I think the original team still has three or four. But then from about when I started, there's like another four or five of us. And I think the thing that makes this restaurant so unique is that the consistency of like the service and like the food and like the package that we offer is not the number one priority of how we do it here. 
the number one priority between front and back is the culture. So we strongly believe that if you look after everybody and you treat them really well, that that package of service and food and wine takes care of itself. If you find the right people to do the job and you keep them happy, you look after them and you compensate them and you and you give them like really good backup and positive reinforcement and you make sure that they know that you think that they're doing a great job, then the work itself that gets done inside the building is like almost for free. Like they, they do it because they want to do it, not because they have to do it for a paycheck. And that's really been driven by Andy and Trav. They were like the, on, on the front lines of making sure that that was a really big deal. Um, the setup in the kitchen is like me and Corey, who's my sous chef, we do like more hours. So we do like between 50 and 55 and pretty much everybody else below us is on like a permanent part-time contract. So we pretty much cannot let them work over 38 hours. It's like what our agreement is. So everybody that works there gets five breaks a week, one night off a week, two consecutive days off, and they never work over 38 hours. So like the work-life balance here is like a big bonus, I guess. I mean, the restaurant is really, really busy. It's really, really hard, but we look after everybody really, really well, and in return, we get great results. Well, in my experience from other places I've worked in, I think it's very unusual. But I think the thing that makes this building so special is... The relationship between front and back is really, really strong. And the building is like one entire team or like one entire unit. And it's really, it's, I can't really say it more, but like Trav and Andy are like the ones that have driven this and like almost instilled it into all the managers that like, you can't run this business without having your staff and you need them far more than they need you. So you need to look after them really, really well. I think restaurants like, because they have such thin margins and they try and stretch things really far or they're so busy or like the people are too busy trying to train and hire and like they're looking too far ahead but they're not actually looking at what they have in front of them like they're not being very present and I think that's like one of the most detrimental things to kitchen and front of house environments is when like you kind of neglect your staff and like you think that they know enough or like you haven't actually trained them enough and they lose interest or they they find the job too hard because you haven't actually invested the time in showing them how to do things properly that they eventually just go nah I'm gonna go I don't want to have to do this anymore mm. whereas here like they come first we train them very well. If they have any issues, we work through them and we make sure that they have all the resources and things that they need to stay. If they have any problems, we sit and we talk about it and we resolve the issues. That's why the staff retention here is amazing. Lots of chefs turn to professional cooking because they grew up around great food and plenty of nourishing time in the kitchen. But that wasn't Connor's path at all. Well, originally I actually wanted to be an architect, but trigonometry was too hard for me I never really got my head around the three different formulas so I always had a big thing for cooking because my mother was not particularly good at it like her dish of choice was carrots glazed and honey and butter and cinnamon which was a which was a fan favorite amongst my siblings but it didn't really sit well with me when I got a little bit older so I started I went to cooking school when I was I think I was 18 but I actually started out the front so I did like restaurant bar and wine for one year and then I did one year of basic cookery and then I did one year again in the kitchen I got a diploma in culinary arts and then I was back in New Zealand at the time and then I worked at like one of the better restaurants in Dunedin which is like down the South Island along the beach it was a hotel restaurant and I worked there for two and a half maybe three years 
And then I decided that I wanted to go to Melbourne because the food scene was much better than what it was in my hometown. And I felt that there was a lot more opportunity here. And my one of my best friends had moved a year before me. So he was already living and doing what he's doing in Melbourne a year before me. So one day, on like a quiet night in the kitchen, me and my friend was like, I'm going to buy some tickets. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. And he just bought them. And I was like, all right, well, we're doing it then. So I moved here in February 2016. And I think two weeks into my, me moving here, I got a job at Cumulus. And I remained there for two and a half years. Uh, pretty good innings, if I must say so. It's a very, very busy venue. It's, it's crazy. It's very impressive. I can remember when they brought out like a stat sheet at one of like the meetings and they were telling us like the quantities of things that they sell. And I remember one set was like 12 tons of lamb shoulder a year. And I was like, what? <laughs> they served like, I can't remember what it was. It was like 222,000 people a year or something ridiculous like that. And the average was like 650 people a day. I was like, that's just madness. <laughs> I'd never worked in a venue that was as crazy as that. And that venue taught me a lot of things. It taught me a lot about food, but also taught me a lot about resilience, physical and mental. It taught me how to be organized and prioritize myself. And if I, if I didn't work there, I would not be the chef I am today for sure. And then after I finished up there, I had, I think I had six or eight weeks off. I went home for a little bit, for like a week. And then I came back and then I actually originally wanted to work at Embla when Alan Eccles was there. And I rang him up and he was like, oh, I have a job and it's not for like maybe two months. And I was like, oh, I can't wait that long. So I actually took a job here as like an interim. Um, and within two months I had wholeheartedly decided that I wasn't going to leave here regardless of what position I held or where I sat in the hierarchy or anything like that I was like I'm going to stay here for quite a while but it was just it was just the vibe of the kitchen and the restaurant because I started in October and I moved through like the, the super busy period I just loved the fact that like I was so well respected and so well looked after and then I had like my boss was really cool like Andy would come to the pot wash just barking and saying weird stuff and just making people laugh because he's hilarious believe it or not and it was fun that you could be one you could have one of the best hospitality professionals in the country working in that capacity and then coming in and they're just kind of goofing around and making everybody feel like really comfortable and like really like, like it's just an, it's just a really nice environment to be in when carlton wine room relaunched in 2018 it was Chef John Paul Toomey, known to all as JP, at the helm. Connor trained under him, worked hard under him, and took over from JP when he moved on early in 2021. And then obviously working under JP, he taught me a lot and he kind of took me under his wing and really helped me like develop myself as more of like a leader in the kitchen, more so than a cook. And he, um, he invested a lot of time in me and he taught me a, a lot of things. A lot about cooking and a lot about running kitchens and being a leader and organising staff and looking out for them. One of, the, one of the good ones is he taught me about like delivery in the kitchen of like when you're having issues with somebody not doing something correctly and how you kind of deliver your message to them about why it's not it's not right or why it's not okay because some of my deliveries could be a little bit abrasive you might say like I quite tall and I would stand over something and be like this is not good enough why are you doing it like that and he's like you need to work on this like 
you need to not call them out in front of everybody like just make it a little bit more personal and be like well this isn't right this is how it should be and you need to like look at the things that are, that are being done incorrectly and treat them as the variables something that you should be doing a different way so you shouldn't be thinking about the technique in a way that this is how you do it you should think about it as this is everything that can go wrong and then by knowing everything that can go wrong in return you get the perfect technique little things like that was like something that I never thought about myself but like they matter because when you look at your, when you look at like all of the people in the kitchen you look at them as your staff members but they're also they're also individuals and like some of them have sick grandmas and some of them's girlfriends are mad at them and like there's all this stuff going on in their lives that you don't necessarily know about and then like you stand at them and absolutely rinse them like you just make them feel like terrible and like I think one of the most important things he told me was just like be nice but be firm and be assertive you know You're, you are in charge and make sure everybody knows that but like don't be an asshole. essentially A few months ago Connor had a health crisis that completely turned his world upside down how does a healthy young chef cope when he's given a devastating diagnosis? So on grand final day this year, I was at my girlfriend's house and we had a few friends. Well, we didn't have any friends. Over. We just had the household was there. It was like a big house. There's plenty of us, like seven or something. And we were actually watching the All Blacks play South Africa before the grand final came on. And I think I'd had like two beers that day and I was, I just felt really hollow and weird and like I was a bit shaky and I just, I just didn't feel right, but I didn't feel completely off. And then I think around about 5.30 or quarter to six, I had like sat up on the couch and just had this insanely strong seizure. So the whole left hand side of my body locked up. I lost all my vision, all of my hearing completely went and like my jaw was like going out of control. Like I was completely numbed on the left side of my body. It went on for maybe like a minute. And then I came to, like, everything came back. And all the while I was happy, my friend Simon was, like, he was really, really good about it because he kind of just sat next to me and he just, like, he, was, he just, like, comforted me because I didn't know what was going on. And then I came back and he was, like, are you okay? And I was, like, yeah, I think I'm okay. And he's, like, do you remember the rugby score? And I was, like, yeah. He asked me all these questions. And then the ambulance came in, like, two minutes. It was so fast. And I was, like, super discombobulated. And I was, like, what's going on? Like, I couldn't really speak properly. I got taken to St. Vincent's Hospital and they did like lots of different scans and started putting needles in me and stuff and then I got taken up to a room and then the next morning one of the neurologists came around and he said, oh hey man, we've just been looking at your scans, we've seen some abnormalities um, on the brain. I was like, oh okay, that's not great. And all the while this has happening, I actually lost some of my speech after all these things because I had a, a series of like miniature ones after that and I actually couldn't speak properly. So like all of my cognition was completely intact. Like I could ball my fist, I could tie my shoelaces, I could curl my toes, touch my knees, I could do all that. But I couldn't speak properly, which is really scary. So like I knew exactly what I wanted to say. I just couldn't get the words out. I sounded like some like guy that had like 24 Carlton drafts at the pub and was just munted and like couldn't get the words out. And then on Wednesday, no, on Tuesday, that following week I had an MRI scan and then on the Wednesday, I got called into one of the neurosurgeon's offices and he pulled up my scans. He's like, okay, you have a low-grade glioma brain tumor about the size of your palm of your hand on the right-hand side of your brain. So it sits right in the middle of the right-hand side of my brain. So the front, the back and the front third has nothing, but it's about that big. You can't see it because... But yeah, it's about the size of a male band's palm of his hand. It's probably half as thick. 
So that was like a bit of a shock to the system because I'm 29 years old and someone's told me that I have a gigantic brain tumor, but he went through all of like the details behind it. It's not cancerous. It's not aggressive. And he reckons that it's been there for years and it's just gone to a point where it's grown big enough that it's pushed against my brain. That's what's caused the seizure. So thankfully those three beers weren't what caused it. Um, from that point onwards, um, I just got put on like a series of medications so I wouldn't have any more seizures and I was cleared to go back to work. The only thing that really changed was that I knew that I have a brain tumour and that I'm not allowed to drink any more alcohol for the, for the time being. Um, I have another scan next month and then we'll set a date for surgery. But the surgery is looking at maybe late January. But um, the chance of any permanent brain damage is 5%, which is awesome. But the details get a little bit tricky because I'm left-handed my brain's actually flipped so like what would normally be on this side is actually on the other side so because of that my brain shares on both sides for different things like identifications and speech and motor skills so when I do have the surgery I'm going to be awake which is kind of cool so they'll like anesthetize me and they'll cut my scalp open and open my brain up and then they'll wake me up and then they do a thing called brain mapping they like stick a probe into it and then they figure out which tissue is brain tissue and functional and which tissue is tumor and then while they're doing that they like ask you questions and then like they tell you to identify objects and they get you to write on things and stuff so they make sure they're not touching any of the actual functional brain tissue then they'll put you back to sleep then they'll cut it out then they'll wake you up again and make sure they didn't cut anything out that they shouldn't have it's pretty crazy it's called an awake craniotomy but in terms of like the whole the whole escapade, like the diagnosis, the upcoming surgery. I think there's a saying that goes like, if you've already put their problems in a pile, you'd take yours back. Have you heard that before? Like, I don't know if it's a saying, but like, I, like the circumstances are not really that bad. Like, it, yes, there is a tumor. I'm really young. I don't feel like it should have happened to me, but it is. It's the hand I've been dealt. And like the numbers and everything that I've been given are really good, like 5% of any damage. And the recovery time is subject to the individual. So I could return to work within two weeks or I could return to work within two months. I don't really know. So at the moment, like my focus is entirely on training my team and building them up so I can actually go away and have a brain surgery and not have to worry about the place going on fire. My five days in the hospital, I had experienced every emotion imaginable because they were drip feeding me information. Like one morning the neurologist would walk in and be like, hey, you got a brain tumor, okay, bye. And I was like, what? And his, his he was a weird dude. His conversations would be like 20 seconds and they, and they would always be at 10 to eight in the morning when I'm like half asleep. He's like, oh, did I wake you? Sorry, you got a brain tumor, bye. I was like, what? Okay, cool. Any more information for me? No, okay, bye. And then you just sit there stewing in your bed all day. It's like, what's gonna happen? Like, am I gonna become like a cabbage and they'll be able to talk again or like what's going to happen you know but I think after all the information got finally relayed and put through and everything got put into perspective and I got told that I could go back to work that was probably when everything settled down because the first thing that went through my mind when I got told I had a tumor I was like oh my god what am I going to do about work like because I was at such a good point personally I was at such a good point in my cooking career I was like well if it all gets taken away now like what was the last 10 years for and that didn't sit very well with me. But when he did tell me that I can go back to work, I was very happy. 
Cooking is at the centre of Connor's life, but the actual chop and sizzle isn't the aspect that he loves most. Cooking for me is, I wouldn't say it's like my life, but like it's something that I hold so dearly because it's so like vast and then doing it in a prof- like a professional capacity is completely different to what you'd see on television. But the thing that I love most about cooking is like not the actual aspect of like cooking things like putting things in pans and cooking them I just like the hospitality aspect of, of everything the people that you work with the people that you learn from and the people that you teach like that whole environment is what I love the most about cooking it's a, it's a bizarre addiction because you work like 60 hours a week and you're on your feet all day and your whole body hurts but like there's nothing going to stop me from getting out of bed the next day and going back in there and doing it again I get a huge kick out of teaching people things and watching them go from not being able to, not even being close to be able to do it to absolutely nailing it. I love that. Head chef Connor Pomroy leads a team that includes just qualified chef Bethan Williamson and Nepali student Benad Gotem. We'll be hearing from them in upcoming shows, as well as owner Andrew Joy and Samelia Sayaka Bilsic. Stay with us as we hang out all week in Carlton Wine Room. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you.